Good morning. I'm Joel Dykstra, and today we'll be reading from Proverbs 3, 1 through 10, which can be found on page 528 in the Pew Bible. Proverbs 3, 1 through 10. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray one more time. Jesus, we come now and we ask that you would use your spirit and your word to speak to us, to transform us, to heal us, to correct us, to help us. I pray for receptive hearts where our hearts are cold or hard or distant or weary. Would you come in a special way to invigorate and animate and help us? Where we're already leaned in, God, would you come and would you satisfy the thirst we have and would you would you speak to us? We want to be a people that align ourselves with your word um, and we will be confronted this morning, no doubt, in lots of ways. So would you speak loudly Would you speak over my voice? Would you speak over the culture's voice? Would you speak even over my sister's and brother's own voice in their head? Would you speak loudly this morning to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, hey, if you're new with us, um, we're in a series in Proverbs. This is week number three. We kicked off just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, essentially, I probably don't have to convince you the need for a series on Proverbs if you knew it was a book about wisdom. When you just look at the world around you, regardless of your age or demographic or background, I think we can kind of all agree like wisdom is needed. Whether you're saying that at somebody else or you're saying it for yourself, you just see foolishness, you see places of disrespect, you see places of brokenness, you see places of anger, outrage, division. It's just all over the place. And so one of God's kind gifts to us is to help us kind of engage with his word and to learn what it means to follow him. The Bible is really clear that God didn't come to give us rules to follow or give us just a better ethic to live by. He came to transform and change us from the inside out. It's a promise of the Old Testament. It's what Jesus came to accomplish for us as he took us from from a place of rebellion and brokenness and made us alive and brought us to himself. But it's not like a theoretical bringing us to himself. The scriptures tell us what that looks like and give us instruction on how we would live into that and Give us all kinds of warnings and cautions and invitations to help us frame out what it means to actually follow God. So we're not following the book of Proverbs because if we did it really well, then God would love us. But we're asking if God already loves us and he's trying to free us from folly and brokenness and things that are actually pretty dangerous in our hearts and in the world around us, what would that actually look like? And it's organized like a father and a mother speaking to their children. It opens in chapter 1 with a father speaking. It closes in chapter 31 
with this image of, of, a, of a woman, of a mom, of this noble woman. So you have these bookends of a mom and a dad speaking to their children. And we get a chance to receive. We get a chance to take a dependent posture and ask for God to actually change and transform us. And, and we started with an imagery of a, the way a tapestry is woven, which I realize is not a very modern imagery. I had to YouTube some things and actually got a little stuck. I was at one point, I believe the, the way you'd say it is there's runners that go up and down that give structure to the tapestry. They're called the warp. And then there's a weft that goes to the left and right. Those are the colored strings. And I had this moment of panic when I was saying that, like, wait a second, is that the way the French guy says that? Or is that actually how do you pronounce weft or wift? Or what am I saying in that space? So I had this moment a couple weeks ago of like, oh my gosh, I'm saying it wrong. But essentially, the idea is there are these horizontal strings that give structure to the tapestry. And then you would weave this tapestry with thousands of colors sometimes, hundreds of colors, uh, to create some sort of design or image or picture. We threw up a couple of uh, images, even like some intricate medieval tapestries that they're trying to get texture on like marble columns through these fabric threads. And it's really, really intricate. And we said that that idea helps us a couple of ways. One, it tells us that when we read Proverbs, it's not simply like a magic eight ball that just you have a problem, you find an answer and you apply it. Thinking like a tapestry says there's this network, there's this woven wisdom that we should actually engage with. That actually the Bible is full of instructions and commands and wisdom that are applied in different ways, in different seasons, in different circumstances. So you're not just finding like an answer. You're trying to marinate in wisdom in ways that these things actually come together. So it's not simple answers, which probably is uh, initially frustrating. But maybe if you lean into it is really good news because it means the things you're dealing with aren't just like simple yes, no issues often. They're integrated. They're, they're complicated. They have layers to them. And so to think about God speaking to us in such a textured way, a woven way, a, an integrated way can actually be helpful. You're not looking for a verse. You're looking for the entire framework to help shape this for you. It also tells us that these things are woven together in ways that they like touch and they blend and they blur together. So, so you don't just put like isolated things like justice by itself. Justice and generosity go together. And kindness and sexual integrity go together. And anxiety and trusting in God go together. There are things that are woven together on purpose. So you're not just standing on one topic or one idea. You're gathering from lots of things, weaving those into your life. We said that. And then we said just the idea of a tapestry just communicates to us that this is beautiful. What God's trying to do is not, again, just keep us in line or just giving us simple ways to operate to get us out of his way. He's telling us what flourishing is about. He's telling us what he's designed the universe to be like. Today, both in chapter 3 and again in chapter 8, we see that, that wisdom was there at the foundation of the world. It's the way God designed the world to work. And so the goal of understanding Proverbs is not just following rules. It's living your life with the grain of the universe. Rather than going across the grain, which would always be uncomfortable, it would be difficult, it would create all kinds of um, unease. There would be things that wouldn't go the way they're supposed to. To cut across the grain is a lack of flourishing. To go with the grain is the thing that brings shalom. It brings peace. It brings wholeness. So, so we're, we're trying to engage this book in ways that ask, like, what is the beautiful vision of God that would lead towards flourishing? So we, so we gave an introduction, right, that, that at the middle of this tapestry is God. He's what the tapestry is about. He's the one who created wisdom. The voice of wisdom is his voice. It's personified like a father, but it's, it's God's voice to us. 
speaking against the voice of our ancient evil enemy who would love to flatter and seduce and draw us into a way that would distrust God, that would would say things about you, that would actually entice you to go down a road that would lead to death. And so the one who's speaking, the one who's weaving this tapestry is himself the center of the tapestry. The scriptures say in verse chapter 1, verse 7 of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He is at the epicenter of this whole thing. So so he's what it's all about. He's the one who designed it, created it. He's the one who fulfills it all. Because rules by themselves would never satisfy your heart. But but aligning yourself with the God who made you and made the universe, man, that would be a place of flourishing. So what God is after is for you to actually see him, to see his heart, to see his his heart for you, to see his heart for the poor, to see his heart for the resources, to see see his heart for for the way things are supposed to be. So the topics we've chosen are our relationships and money, and work, and sex. And then we want to talk about justice and mercy, and we want to talk about like conflict or, or our words, like how we, how we speak to each other. There are more topics than that, but if you're taking just primary colors and secondary colors, if you can imagine uh, the red and blue and yellow and the orange and purple and green, we're taking those six colors, and there's tons of different shades of those colors throughout Proverbs, but we want to like survey what does Proverbs say about those. So, so this morning is the idea of, of money. And I want to just name one more feature of Proverbs to kind of help us lean in and maybe kind of awaken you to why this is important. It frames it in ways that tell us there are two choices or two voices. There's this voice of wisdom personified as a woman calling out. And then there's this voice of folly also personified as a woman, but as a harlot, as a seducer, as someone who actually is tempting and drawing us away. And it flatters and it tantalizes, but, but that road leads to death. And let me just stop for a second. That's not something that is just for females. There are male expressions of that. Right? Both male and female kind of have those temptations. The Bible is using women as the metaphor both for the positive wisdom and for, for the seductive flattery. And in that space, you can like think through male prostitutes if you want. I mean, like, don't think about male prostitutes, but if you wanted to kind of go in that space to kind of get yourself in that, in that headspace to go, what would be the thing that would call out to you that would say you're special? And even to think about that kind of says something to us about the transactional nature of sin, that it first woos you and entices you, it speaks over you, and it actually draws you in. It says, I've been waiting for you. You're, you're special. That's the way Proverbs 7 talks. Here's this harlot, and as you're going down the street, she just says, oh, I've been longing for you. I've been waiting for you. And you can just think about how that acceptance or desire makes you feel, how you're motivated actually to do things when someone whispers over you, oh, I, I've been longing for you. I've been waiting for you. There's something about you that's somehow special. Sin says that to us. So you're entitled to things. You're the one who won't get caught. You're the one who's going to beat the odds. Everybody else who goes down this road ends in wreckage, but somehow you won't. And so it's flattering in such a way that says, my, my husband is gone. He's on a long journey. No one's going to catch us. Come into this space with me and have your desires met. And then Proverbs goes on to say, this table that she sets before you ends in death. It's, uh, guests are actually in Sheol. They're, they're in the grave. And in contrast to that, in chapter 8, it says that wisdom is there calling out as well. Not to seduce you, but to say what's true about you and about the world. And so the feature of Proverbs, even in the, the kind of back half of the book where you have this, if this is the case, then this, but if not, then this. Those are your two choices. It puts wisdom and folly in front of you over and over and over again, even when it comes to money. So if we can just acknowledge there's always this two-voice thing happening 
Our task is to tune our hearts to actually hear the voice of God, to hear the voice of wisdom. And we could just own the fact that we have so marinated in our culture that actually does flatter and we love the feelings of that so much that it's actually now in our very pores. If last week we talked about being in a relationship and this porous soul that we have, to hear the voice of the world over and over again tantalizing you, it actually affects you, it changes you, it distorts how you see reality. So, so part of Proverbs is meant to like wake us up, it's meant to help us hear the right voice. A couple of weeks ago our kids were on uh, they are on kind of vacations. They were out of town for about a week. And so Ader and I uh, just took a week of a staycation here in Kansas City and just kind of did the tourist thing in our own hometown. So we started with the symphony and went there. And actually, I really appreciated it and enjoyed it. But I was very aware, like, there are people with, like, music degrees who play instruments who experience the symphony very differently than I did. I could respect and admire. But there was, like, a guy in the bathroom that was like, oh, this piano piece is the best piano piece written in the entire world. And I didn't even know, like, what he was talking about. I mean, I know what a piano is, but I didn't know, like, who the person was or who the music was. And so I just thought, this guy just appreciates this differently than I do. But, you know, I want to be culture. We actually wound up in a jazz club a couple nights later. And so, so I'm trying to lean in a little bit. So we watched some documentaries. And I, I listened to uh, this Miles Davis documentary, which actually was, like, super sad. But, but like, I heard his life story and kind of listened to some of his music. And so in this attempt to be cultured throughout the week, we would often, as we're cooking or whatever, just, just play this jazz playlist. And I was amazed the number of times, I'm sure I got it wrong a couple times, but a number of times I would go, hey, I think that's Miles Davis. I think his tone and the way he's playing, I think that's a recognizable tone of a guy that I've heard in another space. And it just, it was pretty quick. Again, far from an expert, if you were to quiz me, I would fail desperately. But, But there was something about recognizing the tone of something and tuning into that. If that maybe is helpful, when you think about these two voices, even when it comes to money, a place where these two voices just kind of scream at us over and over and over again. And we've been shaped by the culture around us. The, the framework here is to stop and listen to what does God's voice sound like? What's the tone of his voice when it comes to money? Because you've heard things about your entitlement, what you deserve, what you should have, what's worth the risk, what's enough. And we all know like we live in a very affluent Time and space, it's the most wealthy country in the history of the world. Even our area of town is marked by that. Even if you're at the lower end of the economic status here in our own community, that's still by worldly standards incredibly wealthy. You kind of know that, but we have been so told things about our heart and about ourselves, about money, that it can be a little bit confusing. So as we thought about how do we reorient a little bit, how do we open up our hearts, we wanted to stop and say, what does the Bible actually say about money. And so we're going to be in chapter 3 as kind of a launching pad, and then we're going to just survey quickly some of the things that it talks about in Proverbs. I want to use a couple of words to orient us. We're going to talk about like the root, and then we're going to talk about the reward, the reflexes of our heart, and then how to think about resources. So a root, reward, reflexes, and resources. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. There's this father speaking, and I just want you to notice the word heart there. He's not just saying with your mind or with your will or go do the things I'm telling you to do. He's saying with your heart would you engage what I'm telling you. To to remember and not forget is to put them into practice and obey. She was talking about looking into the mirror of God's word, seeing it, and then quickly turning away and forgetting what we even look like and how damaging that is to our souls. And so I simply want to say when God speaks to us, he speaks to the root of how you see the world, how you see him. He goes after the heart. And Jesus says the very same thing. He says that where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. So when we talk about money is to open up a conversation about what you're longing for, what you look to for, for satisfaction, what you're engaging with in ways that you are giving God-like status to actually quench thirst that, that have eternal significance, but you're looking to temporal things and you actually give your heart away to stuff and what it could accomplish for you. You give your heart away to your reputation. You give your heart away to your job. You give your heart away to the material things you can buy because of your reputation and your job. You, you give your heart away to things that promise control and power and approval. Those things actually fold in on themselves. And so he just starts with the root and says, hey, I'm after your heart here. And would you, with your heart, with your affections, with the essence of your being, would you engage with what I'm calling you to? Not just willpower, not just guilt and shame, not just fear of getting caught, not just playing the odds. Would you go to the spaces of the root of your life to your very heart? And then he puts in front of us like rewards or why, like what's the payoff? So he says in verse 2, do this because the length of days and years of life and there'll be peace that will be added to you. This word peace is the word we get from shalom. We see it again in chapter 3 verse 17. It's the idea of God remaking the world the way it's supposed to be, a world without the vandalism of sin and brokenness. He's saying, well, if you follow me, if you hear my voice, if you do these things, it's going to lead to a kind of peace. Let, let not you be satisfied, or let not, um, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablets of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Last week we talked about relationships as a reality. The relationship we have with money affects, he says, both our relationship with God and with other people. And he says there's a kind of reward. God's after your flourishing. He wants you to actually be fully satisfied. And he wants to give you a reward that Jesus says is different than something that a moth and rust could destroy. Different than something that a thief could come in and take. It's much, much deeper than that. When the Bible talks about the treasure even of wisdom, sometimes it's confusing. Is he talking about literal treasure or is he metaphorically talking about the value of something? Because he'll say like, like integrity is like precious jewels. To get wisdom is like having fine gold. But it actually translates to some sort of prosperity. But there's a, a promise in here that the way God's designed the universe, when you go with the grain of that, then your life tends to go well. We talked in the very first week, though, these are not books of promises and guarantees. So it's not that there are formulas that if you were to put A in, then B comes out. We actually see there's lots of exceptions in a fallen and broken world, which is why there's so many different commands. But even like the book of Job shows us that a faithful, righteous person who follows after God's heart, he loses everything. All of his family, all of his possessions, even his own physical health, all the stuff you would look to for power and approval and comfort and control, Job loses all of it because God is after his heart. He didn't do anything wrong. God's after his heart, though, to show him something deeper and more beautiful. The reward here is something deeper than what you could put in your bank account. I think it has application to your bank account. There's ways that if we were disciplined, if we didn't treasure money, if we were generous, if we weren't stingy, if we weren't greedy, if we didn't cheat people, if we, if we gave to the poor, if we were slow in building wealth, we weren't after quick gain, those things like by definition probably would translate to you hitting retirement age with a little bit more in the bank because you didn't squander it or you didn't ask money to do for you what it couldn't actually do. So there's, there's a kind of trajectory, but not a, not a guarantee. The reward he's saying though is, hey, if you give me your heart and you'll follow after me, what's in front of you is shalom. And don't let the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness actually disappear from your purview. 
Would you stay dialed in in such a way that God actually draws you to himself? So, so he wants your good is what I want to say. He goes after the root of your heart and he wants your good. He wants to bless you. The God who has everything and owns everything wants to bless you for sure materially because it helps advance his kingdom, helps to meet your needs. He cares about your need. And I realize talking about this, you have a poll here of people who, who are trying to make ends meet and you're on the edge of some kind of debt that's catastrophic. And there's folks who have incredible wealth. And you spent most of your life kind of with regret, wondering where all of it had gone, how you're using it very well. I mean, I know we have like poles on both sides. So when God talks about blessing, he does care about you physically and spiritually. He wants to bring peace into both of those. But the kind of peace that you would have with God is the kind of peace that if you lost everything, it didn't destroy you. What he's after is actually your soul in such a way that you're not crushed. So that's the way he starts. There's a root he goes after. He wants to offer you reward in following him. And, and then he tells us about these reflexes. It's a way of talking about these two voices again. Look in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. So here's the voice of the Lord and here's this voice of your own understanding. The, the things that make sense to you, the narrative that you've adopted, the things that you've soaked in, the things that you just kind of see as reality. Don't trust that, he says. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes, but, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And that will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Okay, I want you to acknowledge how counterintuitive and probably offensive this is to you. Maybe you've memorized it before, so you kind of clicked in and just said you memorized it. But stop for a second. It says... Do not trust yourself. How often do you hear that? I think you hear screamed at you, seducing you regularly. You can only trust yourself. You're the only one who knows what's best for you. You're the only one who knows what will bring you joy. You're the only one who can define yourself. The best thing you can ever do is be true to yourself. And here comes the word of Scripture that I'm saying is for your flourishing. And it says, trust the Lord with all your heart and don't lean or depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't stop and say what makes the most sense to me, but instead fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And that's the thing that will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Our world seduces you with the idea that if you're true to your desires... If you just said yes to what you feel, if you were true to yourself, then you would have healing and refreshment. This passage is counterintuitive. And it names for us like two reflexes. Here's a situation, here's a decision, and I have a reflexive response to that. I have a desire to do something about what I'm being um, encountered with, what I'm seeing in front of me, what I'm being stimulated by. And like the child or the young man walking down the road hearing the voice of the adulterer, Calling out, there's a desire there to be true to himself and his own desires. Things happen inside of his body and things begin to awaken inside of him. And everything is screaming, be true to yourself. Go, go take what you want. And the scriptures are saying over and over again, that, that perspective, that reflex often ends in death. Far, far from healing, far from refreshing to go to the house of an adulterer rather than satisfy you, leaves you dehumanized and depleted. You walk out, less money, more shame, and more empty. 
It doesn't actually satisfy, but everything about the moment screamed at you, this is the thing that's going to satisfy. So Proverbs puts in front of us this idea here of the reflexes of your heart, and it just calls out to you, hey, when it comes to all of life, stop initially saying what makes the most sense to you and ask, what does God say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and you have this wisdom in your own eyes contrasted to the fear of the Lord. Now just play that out when it comes to all the arenas of your life, and then focus in on money. Think about the ways you spend your money that just make sense to you. They're just normal. They're culturally acceptable. It's the way your parents trained you. It's what you do. It's what your buddies do. It's what everybody at work does. It's what the magazines you read say, the podcast that you're listening to. It just tells you what to do almost automatically. And then think about the way the world is enticing us. It's flattering us. It's, it's speaking things about how precious and beautiful and special we are. What you deserve and what you're owed. That, that voice is integrated into your life. You have so marinated in the voice of the world that, again, it's just in your pores. So to stop and say, you do not have a neutral thought. This is incredibly offensive to you right now. I, I understand, but can I just tell you all the things you're thinking and dreaming of and desiring they come from somewhere now you're sorting through it you're making sense of it you're adapting it you're doing something with it but we are made as interpretive beings porous at the core to receive you sort through it all but often we're not aware of the way this voice of our own wisdom has been shaped and tainted and influenced and morphed by the world around us that isn't actually after our flourishing. It's not after our allegiance to God. It's not after us actually sacrificing and advancing the God's kingdom. It's, it's actually enticing us to our own desires. I just, I just want to flag before we go forward. Uh, on purpose, I think he says something that would be challenging in the first century as it is to you now. Even when it's written kind of in, in the B.C. era, the ancient world, this is something that would be offensive. And a beautiful invitation because you could just stop for a second and go, Maybe, just maybe, God who designed everything is wiser than me. Maybe the God who's not trying to rip me off and take from me, he's not trying to seduce me to get something from me, but he's generous and he only gives to me, maybe that God actually has some wisdom when it comes to my stuff, my relationships, how I think about work and sex and how I think about conflict. These categories, actually, he's speaking to spaces where I'm being trained not to listen to my own heart. It actually would be good for me if I didn't. There's places, though, but it's so reflexive. It's just there. So over and over again throughout the book of Proverbs, you're just going to see put in front of you. This is what the two voices sound like and what happens. So much of the goal of Proverbs is to get upstream from the disaster so you can see what will take place. Because no young man walking down the street being seduced by a prostitute thinks it's going to end in death. So Proverbs just kind of opens it up and says, hey, let me just show you. Fast forward. Let me just fast forward to the end of the movie of your life. This is where this thing ends. If you were to live your life apart from God, you live life to your own wisdom, kind of satisfying your own desires, forgetting who God is, denying who he is, kind of finding your own way, here's what happens. Even if you somehow win by the world's standards, but you leave your soul behind, Jesus says, what does it profit him if he gains the whole world? And he forfeits his soul. Fast forward to the very end of the movie is what Proverbs is doing. Say, hey, this is where this leads. So that you have time to receive the warning and engage in the instruction and the invitation to actually change your heart. Uh, this passage, when it comes to money specifically, which is where he's going to go next, the two reflexes are about our wealth in verses 9 and 10. He wants us to say to you, hey, there's a, a reflex that you actually need to get in touch with. And God wants to reorient and shape that. 
Okay, so now we're to money. Look in verse 9. He says, after all of this framework, here's the resource. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. The first thing he says is actually to think about God at the center of the universe and everything you have actually being given to you by him. To honor the Lord with your wealth is to see him as the creator sustainer. The one who designed it all, the one who owns it all, the one who has the entire universe in his hands. That includes everything in your bank account and everything you're longing for. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And your, your wealth, regardless of your economic status, maybe you got a bunch of it. Maybe you're like, I can't find any of it. Either way, whatever you have, honor God with what you have. And with the first fruits of your produce. This idea of first fruits is an Old Testament idea of, of engaging that everything I had comes from God. So it's harvest time, and I'm acknowledging I didn't make it rain. I didn't design the seed. I didn't put the soil in its space. I didn't actually produce this. I couldn't actually make this happen. I did the work, but God's the one who brought the yield. So whatever I have comes from him as an act of worship and acknowledgement of who he is. I'm going to give the first 10% of what I have, the first fruits of my, my receiving from God. I'm going to give that to him as a way to say, all this is yours anyway. It's, it's a symbolic way of saying the rest of the 90% is also yours. Let me give this to you to kind of redistribute it back into the world in ways that would bring flourishing. So that's what he's talking about. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, which means the reflex is to say, ah, everything I have comes from God. All my resources, all the stuff I have, it actually all comes from him. That's what that would mean in our modern understanding, to honor him and have a reflex of the first response I have is to acknowledge he's the one this all comes from. And then if you do that, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And you're like, man, I don't know. Is this a guarantee? Is it saying if I put down 10%, then I'm going to get this massive yield? And you just want to stop and go, no, the Bible doesn't work like that. This is not an equation or a manipulation of God. That would put you in control. If this is a place where you were putting down a deposit on something and to guarantee your own success, it wouldn't be about God at all. It would be about you. So far from this being like a manufactured guarantee, an airtight sales pitch to you of how you can build wealth over time, it's a promise that God wants to do you good. And when you acknowledge him with everything you have, he tends to bless you because he wants to bless others through you. And this blessing is far beyond the material world, but it surely would involve your stuff. And there's this promise of an abundance, right? This flourishing, this idea of peace, this idea of things actually overflowing, this thing that's healthy. God wants to give it to you as you actually acknowledge him. And then what you realize throughout the rest of Scripture, even the book of Proverbs, is that can be true with very little zeros in your bank account. So vats overflowing and, and barns being full it actually speaks of God being the one who's responsible. Because again, you can't make the crops grow. You can't make that happen through your own labor. So he's saying, I will continue to do the work that I've begun in the world. I'll continue to show you myself. I'll continue to go after your heart. I'll continue to refine your reflexes. I'll continue to actually engage with you in such a way that as you honor me, I will be with you. Little or much, whatever your amount of wealth is, this is promise here of some sort of, of blessing. So, so I think you see here a root you, you see this reward, you see these reflexes, and then you see a way to think about resources. Can I take a risk here and do like a quick survey of Proverbs with you to kind of name some things that are, are in the text when it talks about what does honoring him look like? Because that's the question you should ask. If he says to do that, we're saying hey, it first starts with verse 9 of giving him the first fruits and saying all this comes from you. That surely would be kind of the headwaters of this. That's where it all would start. 
Because the scriptures say that the wealth that we have comes from God. It's, it's a blessing from him. And our understanding skews how much we need to be blessed. Our, our culture and our world kind of distort some of that. But still the idea is the blessing comes from him. So the first fruits are his. Proverbs 8, 18 and 21 says this. Let me just, okay, you're not going to be able to write all these down or turn to all these. I'll put this in the newsletter. I'll email you my notes if you want to catch the references. But let me fire off some passages for you as we go with the weft. We're going to follow the weft for a moment. What does it say across the scriptures? Here's Proverbs 8, 18 and 21. Riches and honor are with me, God says, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The scriptures say that God is generous, that he's good. He's a generous God. The reason why we have a conversation about money and even generosity makes any sense is because we look at a God who first is generous. So, so God is generous. It's all about him. He's the one who this thing responds to. That's the idea of first fruits, and he owns it all. But the scriptures say wealth is not to be trusted as a resource or a savior. So Proverbs 10.15 says a rich man's wealth is his strong city. A rich person looks at his resources and says, ah, this will protect me. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. It says in Proverbs 18, 10 to 11, the name of the Lord actually is the strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city like a high wall in his imagination. It's a faux kind of protection. It's not actually real. The stuff couldn't actually keep you strong. So in that space, God is the one who is our tower. We're, we're told he's generous. He gives wealth to those he wants to bless, and yet we're told not to trust it. 11.4 says riches can't save us. It says riches don't profit you on the day of wrath. They, they can't actually deliver you from death. Proverbs 11.28 says whoever trusts in his riches will fall. A, a wealthy man looks to the wealth as the walls. Those who trust in their wealth, it will fall. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. This image of, of flourishing and growth. It says that righteousness is the real treasure in 15.6. And then he says in 16.8, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. God gives everything, but you're not supposed to trust the stuff he gives. The heart is actually drawn to God in righteousness, not in getting more things. So he owns it all, but don't trust it. Keep trusting him. And that leads to generosity. So Proverbs 11, 23 through 25 says this. It says, The desire of the righteous ends only in good, and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. Those are the two voices there. One gives freely, yet grows only richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. One gives freely and is blessed. One withholds and saves and hoards and actually suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The fabric of the universe, the way God's designed things to work is, is to give so that you would give, to bless so that you would bless, to, to give generously to you so you would give generously to others. God has this redistribution in his mind. And those who give, he tends to give more. And as they bless, they themselves are watered. It goes on to say, don't, don't hoard, don't hold back grain, because that will actually bring a curse. The community who needs it will say, why aren't you sharing what God has given you? Proverbs 14, 31 says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. It has this God-centered understanding of even the stuff that we have, and we're called 
as God's people to give generously because he's given to us. And that would push against greediness. There's all kinds of warnings against greed, Proverbs 15, 27, Proverbs 28, 25. It says that greed actually stirs up strife. And whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. There's a call against desiring just to have more to kind of protect yourself and pad your own nest. And when you do that, it actually wrecks your relationships, he says. It brings all kinds of strife. So uh, a disorienting love of money, uh, malforming you to think this is what's going to protect you, would cause you to want more of it as you cause to want more of it. It actually then harms your relationship and brings strife. Scripture has this long view as well. It says very clearly it's better to actually build wealth slowly than to just inherit this windfall. So Proverbs 13, 11 says this, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Whatever gathers little by little, it will increase. And it's not just a savings plan. He's saying if you're not looking to that thing to save you, if you actually are stewarding that well, then God will continue to kind of engage with you in ways that bring about flourishing. Proverbs 13, 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Even going so slow that you're, you're leaving things for another generation, that's kind of the goal. He says in verse 20, verse 21, he says, An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. And the idea here is that God wants to grow our character alongside of our money. Tim Keller has a little devotional on the book of Proverbs, and he says that if we don't engage kind of wealth over the long haul, then we don't build the diligence and vigilance and skillfulness. We don't grow in the character and the habits necessary to manage it well. You've seen that. It's every movie you've watched. It's every lottery distribution. It's the way when people get an inheritance and a trust fund, how it wrecks them in so many ways, right? But that quick wealth versus the slow, disciplined engagement actually begins to change us over time. I have four more in that section. I'm going to skip those for the sake of time. He says there's a warning against pride when it comes to your stuff. If God's the one who has it all, then it's dehumanizing and it malforms you to think you deserved it. And actually, it, it, it actually uh, is rough on you, it says. Proverbs 18.23 says, The rich answers roughly. He engages crassly in the world around him. Proverbs 19.4 says, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. It changes your relationships. And you're not sure if these people like you or just like your stuff, and that messes with your head. The pride of having actually folds in on itself. Proverbs 20.11 says, A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. To kind of not see yourself as the one who deserved or earned, but the one who actually has just been given keeps you in a space with the grand of the universe where God is at the center, not you. It says that we should use our stuff for justice and mercy, to not hold back from the poor, to, to give and not expect to be repaid in ways that we can actually bless those around us. And it ends with a call to contentment. Proverbs 37 to 9 says, There's two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me, for I... Uh, I will perish if you do. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of the Lord. If I have too much, I'm going to be tempted to deny you. If I, if I don't have enough, I'm going to be tempted to curse you. God, would you make me content with what I have? And that will bring about a kind of integrity. Oh, man. Hey, the reason why we're having you read a chapter a day is to catch some of these rhythms and some of these threads. But what you see here is a reorienting of your heart. 
I don't know as I went through that, like, is greed the thing? Is generosity to the poor the thing? Is it not stressing and being anxious about what you have the thing? Is it being content with where God has you? Is it, is it desiring to grow things slowly so your character can keep up with it? Is it you actually seeing everything, even the circumstances and situation you have, as coming from God? Or is all that stuff kind of swirling around your heart? There are multiple voices speaking to you. And the voice in this text that calls out to us is saying, God is the one who's at the center of this whole thing. Honor him. And what it looks like to honor him is to see him as the source and then join him in what he's doing in the world around us. Because God himself is a generous God. God designed the world for him to show off his generosity. What we see even in Jesus is the one who had everything, giving up what he had to come towards us. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Corinthians. He actually says in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that God who, who had everything, Jesus was very rich, it says, yet for our sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus lives into all of these realities. He lives into the, the sacrifice and the giving and not looking to stuff as the one that would ultimately give his reputation and identity, but was willing to divest himself of everything for the sake of others. He models for us what he commands to us in the book of Proverbs. Let me just come back to this idea of first fruits just for a second because part of the command in Deuteronomy when they're telling God's people to do the first fruits thing is to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. And you're not just saying all I have now, but where I come from is marked by grace. So to honor God with our stuff is to say this represents what is true of my soul as well. I was a slave and you set me free. So I'm bringing this offering, not just monetarily, but, but symbolically, spiritually, to say, I am in need, and you satisfy. In that space, when Jesus comes into our world, it's this echo of the Exodus story where we were enslaved to sin. He's the one who died in our place to set us free. And that's the way we can actually move forward in this universe in a way that actually is with the grain of what God designed. God is a liberating, gracious, generous God. He modeled that for us and he poured himself out to set us free from the slavery of money, the slavery of materialism, the slavery of entitlement, the slavery of envy, the slavery of greed, the slavery that you've absorbed from our culture. He died to set you free from that and modeled a self-giving love that radically changed you, not just in this life, but in the life to come. So we kind of land the plane on a money generosity sermon, gazing at Jesus saying, oh, he didn't just tell us to do it. He, he did it. And that changed everything for us. And it actually, as it changes you, it frees you from those things that have had a grip on your soul. To look to Jesus as the one who's beautiful actually lets you hear his voice and turn away from the other voices so that you'll be drawn to him and him alone. That's the desire that God has for you this morning. To show you how generous he is so you'll look to him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a second? Let me just ask you to take a deep breath ton of passages, lots of things. It's a huge topic in our culture. There's so much confusion. I want us to move now to communion. And while we take communion, I want you just to ask God to speak to you. We've got about 10 more minutes left or so as we sing and take communion. Would you just let these 10 minutes actually continue to refine your soul and speak to you about what's true and ask God to actually make application. And as you hold reminders of his generosity, of his broken body and shed blood in your hand, and as you taste it, would you let that nourish your faith in such a way that you look to him and him alone as the one who could actually fully satisfy? Start there and then ask him, hey, what have I been looking to to satisfy except for you? 
What have I longed for except for you? Would you help me in those spaces actually move towards you? So for Christians, I want to invite you to come and take communion and remember this generous God who gave himself for you. He laid aside his wealth so that you could actually have it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, what we've been talking about is a God who, who loves you, who designed the universe. He, he came for you, and he, he does what you needed him to do in his son Jesus in a way that makes you right with God if you'll trust him. That's the good news of the gospel. If you're not ready yet to trust him, there's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. But I want to ask you to just stay in your seat and ask God to speak to you right there. It won't be awkward. You can just stay there and pray, ask for him to speak. And, and if you want someone to pray for you, back at the couches near the bathrooms, out this door to my right, and if you're in the overflow room, out that door to your right, you'll find people there with lanyards on who would love to pray for you. You could share with them whatever God's doing in your heart, and they'll pray over you, ask for God's blessing on you. Let me pray for us now, and then we'll take communion and remember the generosity of God as you come. Jesus, we ask for your help. Would you shape us and change us and transform us by the truth that you, the one who held everything, gave it up on our behalf so that we could be rescued and redeemed. We, we love how you are. Speak to us now the good truth of that. Let us hear your voice, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready.